ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಸರ್ವಲೋಕಾಮ್ಯಹಂ ವರ್ಸ್ ನಂಬರ್ ಒನ್ ಹಂಡ್ರೆಡ್ ಥರ್ಟಿ ಫೈವ್ ಕಾರ್ಯಕಾರಣತಾ ಕಾರ್ಯಕಾರಣತಿ ಕಾರ್ಯತಿ ಕಾರ್ಯತೋ ಗೇತ್ ಕಾರಣತ್ವೇತ್ ಕಾರ್ಯಾಚಾರತ ಕಾರ್ಯಾಚಾರತ ಸದಿ ಕಾಸ್ ಎಕ್ಸಿಸ್ಟ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಥ್ರೂ ದಿ ಎಫೆಕ್ಟ್ ಬಟ್ ದ ಎಫೆಕ್ಟ್ ಡಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಎಕ್ಸಿಸ್ಟ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಕಾಸ್ ವೇರ್ ಫೋರ್ the causality of the cause is lost because of the non existence of the effect and all of this we see through vichara a philosophical inquiry now what does this mean it sounds profound but also puzzling the teachings have been given we are almost at the end of the text so that all the teachings have been given and before concluding shankaracharya gives us it's as if the source code of advaita vedanta you know the basic methodology what exactly happens when advaita vedanta is taught the basic methodology of teaching advaita vedanta he is giving us this at the that's the last topic um to understand this we will use the familiar example of the uh, pot clay and pot So let's take that example in four stages when we understand the example remember it's not about pots nor about clay it's about brahman and this world that we experience our real nature and what we experience ourselves to be or we what we think we are right now it's about that about the ultimate reality and this this universe but the pot example is used let's first understand this verse in terms of the pot example and the pot example actually will be mentioned by shankaracharya in the next verse itself he says use the example of the clay and the pot to understand what i've just told you so let's look at the example of the clay and the pot and understand this verse and then we'll apply it to our experience of the world and try to discover the absolute here and now itself it will be done in four stages imagine a pot in your mind do this thought experiment take a pot that stage 1 what do you have a pot now in stage 2 take this pot and now you introduce something called clay this pot we are told is an effect effect here means a product here remember cause and effect the words cause and effect are used 
in a special sense. Cause and effect means the material out of which something is produced is called the cause. In Sanskrit, upadanakaranam. And the thing which is produced is called the effect. So the material out of which something is made, that material is called the cause. Very, if you want to be even more specific, it's called the material cause. In Sanskrit, upadanakaranam. And what is produced is the effect. So for example, if you take this altar, it's an altar. But now you're told that it's an effect, it has been produced. So you have to ask the question, what is the material cause? You'll find the material cause is wood, this one. It's the material out of which the altar is made. Similarly, about the pot now we are told, it's an effect. Immediately we ask, what is it made of? So the cause, what is the material cause? What's the substance out of which this effect is produced? And the, we, uh, we find that the substance is clay. The potter has shaped, formed this pot out of the substance clay. So clay is the cause, material cause, and pot is the effect. Or in Sanskrit, clay is the karanam and the pot is the karyam. Karanam, karyam. Where do you find the cause? Question will be, where do you find the cause? The effect is here. You're holding it. Here's the effect. Where is the cause? Inside the effect. In and through the effect. In the very effect itself, you find the cause. Here is the altar. Here itself, you'll find the cause wood. And when we touch it, we say touch wood. So right here, here and now itself, you can find the cause. The cause exists in the effect itself. So that is the second stage, that the, that the thing that you have got holding, that pot, it's an effect, it has a cause, and the cause is in the effect. This is the second stage. And the verse actually starts with the second stage. It says, Note that in the product, in and through the product, in hearing in the product, um, you will find the cause. So in the pot, you will find the Clay. Alright. Now let's go to the third one. The thir third stage. The third stage is that when you look at the clay and the pot, you notice something interesting. That the pot is, not only the clay is in the pot, but the clay is not in the pot like, say you would store water in the pot or milk in the pot. Not like that. In fact, when you examine it, the, the pot is through and through clay only. When you touch the pot, you're touching clay. When you weigh the pot, you're weighing the clay. When you look at the pot on the top, it is clay. When you look at the bottom, it is clay. Examine inside, all around inside it is clay. All around it, outside it is clay. Every bit of the pot is clay. Are you with me? No problem so far? Now, then we are led to this question, then this is clay which I am holding, where is the pot? Take that, uh, another step, that where is the, where is the thing? You are talking about an effect called pot, but where is the effect called pot? Where is the substantial thing, entity, reality called pot? So Swami, you are holding it, but we are holding clay. Which part of it is a pot? 
Then you will say that, then we, we understand that the material is clay, but all right, there is no substance called pot. There is no real entity like the clay under the second thing produced from the clay called pot. But the pot is a form. It is a particular form. It is a particular name, pot. A form, a name, pot. And of course, use. You can use it to store things, keep things. It can be empty, half full, full. You can put water in it, milk in it, and so on. So it has a name, a form, and a use. Nama Rupa Vyavahara. Now see, the original entity, which you got in stage one, a thing called a pot, a very substantial thing called a pot, has been reduced to a name and a form and use. Nama Rupa Vyavahara. There is no thing called pot anymore. Look at the magic. It's philosophical magic. You're holding the pot, but there's no such thing called pot. No such thing called pot. Follow this carefully. No thing called pot. The thing is clay. Now you might argue, well, but there is a name, there is a form. A form is definitely there. Now the argument gets subtle. Is it there? Which is the form here? Show me a thing called a form. Without the clay, there is no form. A form, a particular shape, we can see it, no doubt. But that thing, the clay, is the form ever there in the clay? No. The form is not a substance. The form is not a thing. Nor is the name a thing. Nor is the usage a thing. Entity, reality, substantiality belongs to clay and clay alone. This reduction, this reduction, reduction means not physically. You're not pounding the pot into clay. The pot is exactly the way it is, without the slightest change. Only in knowledge, it's, it's a paradigm shift. Your whole point of view alters. Only in knowledge, you see that the pot disappears into thin air. And all that is left is a shape, a use, and a name. This reducing an entity to nama rupa, name and form, and vyavahara, use, transaction. This is called mithyatva nishchaya. The determination of the falsity. You might say, how is it false? False in a technical sense. In the sense that it has no independent existence of its own apart from the constituent clay. I'll repeat, apart from the constituent clay, the pot has no independent existence. Right? No? Have I lost you? Independent existence means simple. You take the uh, clay away, nothing will be left of the pot. Not even a shape. Will you think a ghostly shape will be left? Nothing will be left. Take, the, take the, altar, uh, the wood away from the altar, nothing will be left of the altar. So the, it is only a name and form. Pot is only name, form and use. Not a thing, not a real separate entity. This not being a substance into its, uh, unto itself, not being an independent entity, this is called falsity in Vedanta. Not having an existence of its own. Depending on the clay to appear. Without the clay, the pot cannot appear. Without the clay, the name pot cannot be used. Without the clay, the use also cannot be there. You can't keep anything if the clay is taken away. So name, form 
and yous are also dependent on the clay. There is no entity separate from the clay called pot. This is called mithyatva, falsity. The effect is false. The cause is real. Reality belongs to the clay, not to the pot. Reality belongs to the cause, not to the effect. There is, this is said in the second part of the verse. This is stage three. It says, Karane nahi karyata. In the cause, there is no effect. In the clay, there is no thing called a pot. Okay. Then finally, what happens? Fourth, last stage. Last stage is magic. So, the clay, we called it the cause and we called the pot an effect. But when now we realize there is no such real effect called the pot. There is no thing called a pot. They are not two things, clay and pot. That we can say clay is the cause and pot is the effect. Parents and child, cause and effect, separate. They're, both of them are there. So real effect has been made. But is there a real uh, pot produced by the clay? No. If there is no real effect produced by the cause, then why call clay the cause? If there is no effect, why will you call it a cause? What is it a cause of? What real thing is it a cause of? You can say it's the cause of the appearance of the pot. But is it a real thing? Has it produced a real thing? In that case, how can it be a real cause? So the clay is not a real cause. The causality of the clay is lost. The causality of the cause is lost. It's no longer a cause. When the effect is gone, gone means not that the pot is broken. We realize the pot has no substantiality of its own. In that case, it's not a real effect. We cannot say there's a real effect which has been produced. Then the clay is not really a cause either. Then what happens? The clay alone remains. There is no such reality called pot. Though the pot appears and you can continue to use it and call it a pot also. But you know there is no reality called a pot. The clay alone remains and you cannot call the clay a cause of the pot also. This is the conclusion. So, you start with a pot and you still end up holding, it still looks like a pot. But in your understanding, you're starting with a pot and ending up with clay. And the process is, first, um, a temporary causality is superimposed there. A temporary causality, uh, an artificial cause-effect cause relationship is introduced in order to make us understand that clay alone is the reality. Why is it an artificial cause-effect? Because ultimately we'll see there's no real effect, there's, so there's no real cause either. In order to make us understand clay alone is real, pot is an appearance. Okay. And all this is done vicharata, by inquiry, by the, by the philosophical inquiry, by inquiring into the nature of this, this entity called a pot. It is not done physically. You don't smash the pot into clay, that I, I will now have clay only, which means the pot is gone, I pound it into clay or break it, no. I dissolve it, no. It remains as a, you can still continue to call it a pot, you can use it as a pot, it still looks like a pot, talks and walks like a pot also. But you know that it is clay alone. You think, is it a pottery class or a Vedanta class? <laughs> Alright, now we are ready to apply it. The uh, idea is, now when you apply it to Vedanta, uh, to, to our experience of the world, 
Brahman is consciousness. The, the way it will be applied is, first take the world. Like you've taken the pot, stage one, four stages. Stage one, take the world. And then you'll be told that Brahman, there is a cause of the world. The world is an effect and there is a cause. What is the cause? Brahman. And then you will examine this world which you are experiencing and come to the realization that every bit of what you experience is Brahman. There is no separate entity called the world. So the world becomes a name and a form and a use. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara only. In other words, Mithya, false. If the effect is false, word is false, then its cause, Brahman, cannot be a cause. Remember, Brahman is not false, but its causality is false. Brahman is not false, but its causality with respect to the world is false. It did not produce a world, did not produce a separate reality called the world. That there are two realities, Brahman, cause, world, real, um, effect. Number one reality is Brahman, which is the cause. Number two effect is world, which is the effect. No, not like this. You'll realize every bit of the world is Brahman. And therefore, there is no such separate reality called the world. It is just name and form and use. Nama, Rupa, Vyabhara. And therefore, the world is Mithya, false. Brahman alone is real. If Brahman alone is real and the world is false, then Brahman cannot be called a cause. The causality of Brahman is also lost. So what happens? Brahman alone remains. This is called Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. And one thing is not mentioned here, which will be added later on. This Brahman is you. So the famous saying, Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya Jiva Brahmaivanapara. Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance. And you might say, so what's it, what's it to me? This Brahman, which is the ultimate reality of the world, is you. You alone are real. You means the real you. That alone is real. You alone are real. As existence consciousness bliss. And this world and body and mind and the life that we are leading, they are all appearances of that reality. So this is the, the method that Vedanta uses. Now you will say, all that's fine. As far as the pot and clay example is used, you understand the four stages? Hmm? Do you, uh, first, take the pot, stage one. Second, the pot, pot is an effect and clay is the cause, second stage. Third stage, examine the effect, examine the pot which you are holding. Find out the clay in it, you will find all through it is only clay. Every bit of it is only clay. There is no thing called a pot. So in the third stage, the pot is falsified and we realize clay alone is real. And the fourth stage is that if clay alone is real, there is no reality called pot. Cause alone is real, there is no re uh, real effect. Then why call it a cause? It's not really a cause because it did not really produce an effect. So it's not really a cause. Clay alone remains without its causality. These are the four stages. At any stage, any problem, at least in the thinking, in the understanding? In the, yes. Uh, so, the pot is made of clay. That yes. Is clear. Yes. But there's another thing that is involved, which is language and our understanding, Nama Rupa Vyavahara. Yes. Which is what we created. Yes. Our, our idea, our language has this concept of what we, so is that also not a reality? I mean, the fact that it exists as an idea in our brains, and right. you combine that with the physical reality of clay, yeah. that, that is what forms the pot. Right. And my, my other question is, 
that what is this, uh, what is something similar to uh, this idea in, in the example of Brahman and uh, consciousness, or rather Brahman and the physical reality. Right, right. So what is the analog of this idea of Mahavarabha Vyavahara? Hmm. How does that come about in the, in the, uh, in the example of, of Brahman and so it Brahman and the world, uh, Brahman and the world, yeah. Brahman and the universe yeah. is not the example. It's the exemplified. So it's, it's what we are trying to understand. Right. It's not an example. What is the example is pot and clay. Yeah. I understand what you are saying. Yeah. Remember, don't bring in the concept that okay, we are there is a pot and it's made of clay, but here we are conscious entities. We are thinking about it and we are adding that uh, there is a form and we have to use it. And here's a name called pot. It's language and thought and concept. Don't bring it into that because it's an example. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Upoma Agdeshi. An example is meant to point to, to prove one thing. That in the pot there is nothing other than clay. If there's nothing other than clay, the clay is not really a cause of the pot because it's not a thing which is produced another thing. This much is okay. Now, your question also will be answered when we actually come to this Brahman and the world. Really the question should be this, I understand pot and clay, but when it comes to world and Brahman, what is the tricky part? What is the tricky part? The world is not the tricky part because the world is, I, I see, this is my world. Then, then if you say that, I have to see Brahman as the material out of which the world is made, will you not say how? Oh, pardon? Diversity is difficult, the world is diverse and the one reality Brahman, but you know, the question should always be, if you are actually following carefully, question should always be, I understand what is wood in the altar, it's very clear to me. I know what is wood, I, I understand this. I know what is clay in a pot. I know what is water in, in, in the wave or gold in the ornament. But what is Brahman here? Shouldn't that be the question, first question? Or all of you can understand Brahman here. Am I the only unenlightened one here? <laughs> all are Brahma Gyanis. Question should be that I can appreciate what you mean when you say altar. I can also clearly understand what you mean when you say wood. When you show me a pot, I can clearly understand what you mean when you say pot and what you mean when you say clay, I also clearly understand. I have a clear understanding of clay. But when you say here is the world, I understand. Here is Brahman, what do you mean? Shouldn't that be the question? When I say, take, the, take your experience of the world, this universe, stage one. Stage two, it is an effect, Brahman is the cause. Where is the cause? The material cause will always be in the effect. So Brahman is here. Now, you, one can at this stage itself raise a question. That Brahman is here, um, are you asking us to believe it or understand it? Or actually are you making a claim that it, it can be, it's absolutely clear that this is Brahman. If it is absolutely clear, you can as, as well pack up and go because then you are all enlightened people. Then only one can proceed to the third stage. That every bit of this is Brahman. There is no separate thing called the world. The world is an appearance, Brahman is the reality. And therefore then we can go to the fourth stage, that Brahman is not really a cause, 
Though there is no such separate entity called the world, no effect, so Brahman is not really a cause. Beyond cause and effect, Brahman alone exists. Four stages. But all of this is contingent upon understanding what Brahman is in our experience. Am I, am I making sense to you? Isn't this the vital question? Shouldn't the vital question be, show us Brahman here and now? I, anybody who understands what wood is, will understand where, where is wood. Anybody who understands what clay is, will understand where is the clay in the pot. Now, how will I understand or appreciate Brahman in this? Alright, I'll show you. Advaita says it's actually, once you understand it, it's actually a pretty simple claim. Whether you're convinced by it or not is a different thing, but actually it's a very simple claim. Start with experience. In Vedanta, one Swami was put it very beautifully. Anubhav se shuru karo. Jad se shuru mat karo. Jad se shuru karoge to jad hi milega. Start with your experience, living experience. Don't start with an isolated, insentient object. If you start with an object, you will get only an object. But start with your experience. Then you, the way back to Brahman is, is, uh, is clear, is easy. What do I mean by starting with experience? I mean, stick to the truth. When I show you this book, when I show you this book, you may say, what is it? You say, it's a book. But a more honest, more comprehensive answer would be, I am seeing a book. Correct? No? Yes. I'm giving you two, two sentences. This is a book. Second sentence, I am seeing a book. Which is more correct? I am seeing a book. This is a universe. Statement one. Statement two. It's a universe in my experience. Or I am experiencing a universe. Universe means world, other people, events, my own body, my own mind, feelings, my life. All of it is something that I'm experiencing. Is it correct or not? Yeah. Right. What Advaita says is, the next step is simple. All of that what you experience, it comes in through your sense organs, you either see things or hear things or smell or touch or taste, or it's an internal experience, you have thoughts and ideas and uh, memories and desires, yeah. urges, feelings. This is our, this, these are the materials, the constituents of our experience, right? This is the universe of our experience. Now, all of it is in our awareness. You cannot think of experience without awareness. Anubhava in Sanskrit, without Chaitanya, impossible. Can you be completely unconscious and yet experience anything? Say for example, I feel very happy, but I am um, uh, very happy, but I don't feel it. Can you, can you honestly hold both statements together? I am very happy, but I don't feel any of it. If you don't feel it, can you be happy? So in the case of happiness or misery, it must be felt, it must be within awareness. And what Vedanta says is, if you think carefully, 
everything in your life is within your awareness. I'll even drop the your. Everything in life, in your life, is within awareness. And Vedanta goes further and says, all that is within awareness is all revealed by your awareness. Revealed by awareness, it is all nothing different from awareness. Look at the statements. All things in your life, everything in your life, including what you consider yourself to be, is within awareness. It is revealed by awareness. It is nothing different from awareness. If it was different from awareness, you would not be aware of it, it would not be part of your experience at all. Just like the pot is nothing different from clay, this world of your experience, the world, the universe, the life that you have, is nothing different from consciousness, from awareness, from sentience. This is the bold claim of Advaita Vedanta. Logically, it cannot be challenged. Now your question is answered. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara, name, form, use, concepts, ideas, language, none of them are different from consciousness. How can you have language without consciousness? So, I mean, what I would like to ask here is that if clay is transformed into pot because of the, an idea, so you had, in a sense, uh, the pot is clay, but the idea formed the pot. So, in a sense, we are, we are uh, Brahman, and that I agree with. I mean, I do realize it through various you know, talks. So, I am kind of convinced that, yes, at the base of our existence is consciousness. But, but it required an idea to convert clay to pot, hmm. right? Or, or language to convert clay to pot, or use to convert clay to pot. What is the analog that converts Brahman to existence? Oh, all right. The answer is very straight. In Advaita Vedanta, they will say Maya. Yeah. There is an Maya itself. The constituents of Maya are Nama Rupa. There is a verse in Drigdrishya Viveka. Asti bhati priyam uh, rupam namam cheti angshapanchakam adhyatrayam brahma rupam jagat rupam tatodvayam. Our experience can be analyzed into five factors. What are the five factors? Isness. Revealedness or experiencedness, shiningness, bhati. Priyam, we'll bracket that because that leads to controversy. Priyam means uh, 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 lovable or delightful or blissful. And name and form. The first three are Brahman. The other two, name and form, are Jagat. This name and form is the contribution of Maya. Maya has no separate existence apart from Brahman. Just as name and form have no separate existence apart from Brahman. Just as the, as the pot has no existence apart from clay. So Maya is not a second entity ontologically speaking apart from Brahman. Therefore it does not lead to dualism. Non-dualism is maintained because ultimately there is only one real independent entity that is Brahman. But to explain the appearance of a variety of names and forms, this bewildering richness of the universe, Maya is used, the concept of Maya is used. But when Advaita Vedanta says, Brahman alone is real, 
the world is false or the universe is false. Remember, the whole thrust is on the question what is real and what is false, not what appears. Certainly the universe appears. Vedanta does not deny that. But is it real in the sense that Brahman is real? Certainly a pot appears, but is it real in the sense that clay is real? No, no. Clay alone is real because it's a substance. Now, in our experience, whatever we experience in the world, it is nothing other than consciousness. I'm using the words very precisely. It is no second thing apart from consciousness. Though it appears to be so many things. And indeed, more confusingly, consciousness appears to be one thing among many other things also. What happens is consciousness shines upon the mind and the mind appears conscious. And that's what we think consciousness is. So there is something conscious here and the non-conscious world of millions, billions of entities is here. So it's a plural world of billions of entities, including one thing called consciousness. No, Vedanta says if consciousness were to be understood properly, then you would see it is the very substance of the entire universe. It is the one reality which appears in all of these forms. Or it is the one reality in which all these forms appear, in which all these forms are experienced, and that which is not, the, uh, all the forms are not different from that. And that one reality of this universe, of this experienced universe, is consciousness which you are. Your essential reality is this consciousness. Today, see, it, it leads to, um, it, it's, it's an incredible claim, of course, very um, sort of all-encompassing claim. But it's interesting that a lot of discussion is beginning, not about this. This is too much for people to digest. Uh, because then everything else is put down to a lower grade of reality. Art and science and what we consider to be truth, all of that is put to a second order reality, the fundamental reality becomes consciousness. Pure consciousness, not thoughts. Today I, I uh, went to the Department of Philosophy in NYU. So some of the top minds of the world in, in this area, it's called the philosophy of mind. They, they have Tim Crane, there was a talk by Tim Crane. He's a British philosopher. He was visiting. The subject was behaviorism and, and psychologism. And uh, there were people like Ned Block and David Papineau and Kenneth uh, Appiah and uh, some others I did not recognize, but they were like the leading figures in some of them well-known top philosophers today in the world and some of them the leading figures in the philosophy of mind. In fact, so much so, Tim Crane, who is himself a major figure, he was saying that it's an honor to be in this room with such people because, and he says, I'm not being sycophantic. <laughs> uh, but it's a fact that you are the leading thinkers on this subject in the world today. And you know what's the subject they were discussing? The point of discussion today was that um, at one time, at the beginning of this century, um, in the middle of the century actually, uh, the, the whole idea was, see, science was regarded as a model for studying anything. Truth comes from science. And one of the factors in science is being objective. Being objective means eliminating the subject. My personal consideration should not be as uh, a part of the study. The study should be objective. It should not have anything to do with any your inner 
life, which means your preferences, your thoughts, ideas should not be part of it. Feelings, it should be completely objective. It's out there, a truth. Now, this is very good. But people forgot, this is good when you are studying objects. Certainly when you are studying objects, a subject should not be part of it. It will confuse things. But what about when you are studying the subject? The great German philosopher, Frege, he, he coined this term psychologism. Uh, he said, this psychological entities, he called it idea. So thoughts, feelings, emotions, our own in, um, views, they should not form a part of our study. So he said we should re remove, especially he was interested in removing psychologism from mathematics. So psychologism in mathematics, psychologism in logic. So he said remove psychologism, make it a purely objective field of study. So this is, this is called psychologism. Psychologism means our inner psychological entities should not be confused with um, objects outside. And it's a good point. But what happened was, it was applied to psychology. So when you study the psychology, our inner person, then the psychology of the person should be left out of it. The subject should be left out of the study of the subject. When you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous, but it became like that. So it gave rise to a school of thought, very prominent school of thought. He right here, Watson was there. Um, who? Skinner, Skinner. Uh, behaviorism, where all of psychology, all of psychology is taken to be the behavior, the observed behavior of the subject. What you are thinking about is of no interest to me. What you do is of interest to me. So Skinner said, all of psychology can be understood. Today he gave a quote from a well-known psychologist in the 1930s. This is all of psychology can be understood. Human psychology, he says. All of our psychology can be understood by observing a rat in a maze. What a horrifying thought. <laughs> Skinner said, behavior, it is stimulus, reward and punishment. Stimulus and response. Operant conditioning, all those things we learned, Thorndike, um, Skinner, we also learned it. He made a claim, give me a child in its formative years and whatever you want the child to be, engineer, doctor, thief, murderer, I will make him. <laughs> Just by reward and punishment, operant conditioning. So that is behaviorism. What are, what are thoughts and feelings, inner person, hey, no such thing or whether it's, if it's there, if it is there, it is not the subject of psychology. Psychology, your inner psyche is not the subject of psychology. To that point it came. What a ridiculous point. Why? Because the original guiding principle is if it is a science, it must be an observable thing, an objective thing from which all subjective things have been eliminated. So to that point it came. And now anyway, now the point is, what has happened right now is, now people are very much interested in consciousness. And so today's topic was, this idea of eliminating psychologism from everything is, is proving as a great hurdle to understanding consciousness. Unless you take into account mental events, subjective events, how will you understand consciousness? It's like saying, I will study consciousness, but completely objective, removing consciousness from it.
I'm going to st you study nothing, and therefore you come up with um, with views. Uh, there are very smart people who come up with views like there is no such thing as consciousness. There is nothing, nothing called consciousness. So how can you say that? Anyway, but they have a point of view because, but the basic impulse is that you have to remove everything subjective. But consciousness is the pure subject. If you remove everything subjective from your inner point of view, imagine. If you removed awareness, what would remain of your experience of the world? I'm not saying what would remain of the world. I'm asking what would remain of your experience of the world if you removed your awareness? It would go dark. In Sanskrit, in fact, there is a phrase, Jagat Andhya Prasangam, the blindness of the universe would ensue. Or the darkness, the universe would be covered in darkness. From your inner perspective, the whole perspective will disappear if that inner light is not there, consciousness is not there. This whole issue has become very important just now because uh, uh, David Chalmers, who is here in the NYU Mind Brain Science, uh, Mind Brain Consciousness Unit, he has proposed that uh, this hard problem of consciousness, that how can we have physical entities like this body, how can it have internal subjective first person experience? That's the big question. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. And it's become such a big thing. If you Google it, it's all over the place. Philosophers are interested, linguists. Today there were people, they're cognitive scientists today. Uh, they, there was um, uh, they were lingui at least one linguist uh, and so many people. There was even a, a play in London, a play, theatre, called The Hard Problem of Consciousness. So literature is interested. So many fields are coming together in this interest in the hard problem of consciousness. And David Chalmers, who is um, a philosopher in, the, uh, in uh, NYU, he proposes what is called panpsychism. Panpsychism means that we may have to admit, he says, we may have to admit that consciousness is as fundamental an entity in this universe as space, time, matter and energy. Remember, he is not coming from an Eastern philosophy, Buddhistic or Vedanta background. From a completely um, non-Eastern philosophy background, he's coming and saying that the evidence is driving us to this conclusion that we may have to accept consciousness as a fundamental reality of the universe. Even that is not Vedanta, that's Sankhya. That's exactly what Sankhya says. Consciousness is an independent reality and the universe is separate independent reality. Nature and consciousness, Purusha Prakriti. That's a Sankhyan idea. Advaita is one step behind. A one step behind means deeper than that, where you merge nature back into consciousness. See, in one way, it's just the opposite of materialist reductionism. In materialist reductionism, what is happening is, you are merging consciousness and mind into nature, into, into object. Subject is merged into object. Object alone is real. What am I? Nothing. Body is everything. Brain is everything. No, but I my thoughts and feelings? Nothing. Don't talk about it. Shame that you should talk about thoughts and feelings. So should I be thoughtless? That is perfect state to be thoughtless. <laughs> so all our uh, individual and uh, that is either discounted or devalued or sought away merged back into object. Subject into object is the materialist reductionist approach. Um, I mean, many of them would be so delighted if consciousness were to disappear altogether. 
then the paradigm would be per perfect. Matter, energy, this world is that. That's all that exists. Advaita is just the reverse. It merges the entire objective universe back into consciousness. Merges means you see it. Vicharata. In what sense is the universe back merged into consciousness? Follow this carefully. Exactly in the same sense, the pot is merged back into the clay. Nothing happens to the pot. No change is there. It is realized to be clay. Really speaking. Similarly, no change will be there in your experience of the universe. It will be just like this. You realize every bit of it is consciousness and you are that consciousness. Yes. Yes. So that, that part, I get it. Second part is that everything rises within your consciousness and you know, sort of evolves into it. Yes. I get that. But nothing is different than consciousness. Sort of, that's difficult to digest. Your own example of a plate in which you shine the light and you can see it. Right. I'm still seeing a thing that within my consciousness I'm aware of it. Mm. But it's still a thing that is independent. Until, so in your clay and pot example, yeah. the clay is Yes. Is something happening to consciousness that it becomes that piece of wood, it becomes you that I'm now Right. Aware of. Right. So how, how does that, why are you not different? Right. Look at the paradigm we are using, or the example we are using. When you use a light and object example, light and object example is used in Advaita, but that's not the final example. For example, this light, unchanging light, it illumines every object that I put in front of it. A book illumined by the light. Book goes away, clock comes illumined by the light. Clock goes away, hand comes illumined by the light. So light is constant, objects are coming and going. But clearly these objects are different from that light. They can exist without that light. Light just reveals their presence. This is one example. This example is used in the first stage in Advaita Vedanta to isolate consciousness in our understanding as a separate entity. Unchanging entity revealing all other entities, that is consciousness. That's only stage one. That's the first part of Advaita. Here it is the second, uh, second stage where you isolate consciousness as the cause of everything. But then you go forward, further then the light and object example will not apply anymore. You have to abandon that example now. Once you have understood what light is, take a look at the objects. Once you have understood what consciousness is, take a look at the objects of consciousness. What is the relationship between consciousness and its object? Is it the relationship of light and book? One separate entity and one separate entity coming into contact and being re revealed? Is it like that? Or is it like clay and pot? Clay and pot are not two entities. It's the same entity. So what Advaita Vedanta says, uh, take a, now you give up that example of light and, and book. All, only idea was to give you a clear idea of what consciousness is. Once you've got the idea of consciousness, now ask the question, what is it that consciousness experiences? Are they separate entities outside consciousness? 
or are they something arising in consciousness nothing other than consciousness except names and forms produced by the magic of maya and disappearing back existing in consciousness and disappearing back into consciousness the good example now to use will be dream in your dream there are people there's so many people and so many events and so many places and you have internal feelings also you are also there and you have internal feelings as the person in the dream you have happiness you have misery you have anxiety you have desire there is time sometimes dreams take months and years there is space everything is there but when you wake up all the people are nothing but your mind all the events are nothing but your mind all the space and time of the dream universe is nothing but your mind right even when they existed they seem to be a fully formed universe and you are in that universe exist experiencing a separate universe all of it turned out to be mind in the same way now look at consciousness consciousness is not like the mind imagining things rather in the place of mind now think of consciousness and in consciousness mind and the world is waking world including body and mind they all appear all act exist and they they keep changing and disappearing back into consciousness consciousness is the fundamental reality of our experience this universe is nothing different from your experience your experience is nothing different from your consciousness this is what is meant what is more powerful the 10 years which passed in a dream or the one second when you woke up and realized it was a dream which is more powerful that single second of realization more powerful than 10 years of experiencing a dream that one flash of knowledge is enough to nullify the reality of that 10 years experience all our experience all the time that has passed the space that we have experienced all the objects that have happened all of that is suddenly falsified falsified means we realize they are nothing other than the consciousness which i am experiencing immediate realization will be first of all a oneness with everybody this experience will continue just as the pot continues your experience will continue you will experience oneness with everybody we are all one entity that is one consciousness which i am you are all in me i am in all of you this 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 feeling will come very strongly in fact this realization david chamas he jokingly says this this panpsychism which he speaks about he jokingly says if you think long enough about the hard problem of consciousness if you think long enough about the hard problem of consciousness you either end up believing in panpsychism or go into administration you could give up and go into administration yeah this is the thing then consciousness satyam jagat mithya consciousness is the reality you the consciousness is the consciousness is the reality the world experienced in consciousness mithya false means not that it does not exist these are all names and forms just like the pot it continues to appear all activities can continue in it all linguistic and cognitive behavior can continue in it but you realize the fundamental reality is this consciousness 
and jiva consciousness na paraha jiva sentient individual being you are nothing other than this consciousness one point i would like to emphasize here today also i saw it the, all these super smart people were discussing right now the problem is the present state of the discourse one central problem is they are unable to distinguish between mind and consciousness i have seen how i i, could, I was listening carefully how the discourse wavers back between consciousness and mind they're talking about mind trying to understand consciousness but mind involves a lot of objects also thoughts feelings ideas sensations memories and say so they're saying this is all consciousness so what is this consciousness common to all of them no 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 you must distinguish between consciousness and mind and for that you need a definition of consciousness there no there no definition of consciousness no agreed upon definition of consciousness but vedanta has a definition of consciousness you might be surprised to know and a perfect definition of consciousness what is that anidam chaitanyam not this awareness whatever in every experience whatever is this if you eliminate that you will get consciousness think about it this book go deeper this i go deeper inside this thought about the book all of them this 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 as you step back from the thought into the illumining awareness you cannot call it this anymore because it's not an object anymore it cannot be objectified the moment you cannot objectify it it becomes conscious it it is consciousness in fact You still do you still remember your question? Okay. Uh, uh, so I have a different question. So when you said yeah. that uh, we all are this consciousness, uh, what what is we? Is it is it human beings, or do you go further and say it's all it's all living beings? All beings, But all living beings, all all human beings, all living beings, even all so-called non-living entities. What is a human being? The question arises. Then what am I? Clearly a body, but this is an object. it's an object because it's experienced clearly mind but that's also an object this is one thing that i did not hear today in the discussions there that the mind is an object although it should be the next step to think about but uh, because of the very strong materialist bias to consider mind to be an object is too much for most people mind is an object you are that consciousness in which a mind and a body are experienced identifying with the mind and body limiting yourself to the mind and body you say i am this human being so new who what is a human being brahman what is an animal brahman brahman means satchidananda pure consciousness brahman what is a plant brahman what is a non living thing brahman ultimately yes yes Or even take it negatively, like curse this person. 
you take away this like active causal like omnipotent power of this God. Yes. Is the God, the consciousness that is this in Vedanta essentially an inert God whose realization gives you happiness but no immediate causal impact in this world because quote unquote it doesn't matter because it's false. All right. Now this the question, it's a good question. And the question, the question of God in Advaita Vedanta, in the worldview that we are, pres we are painting, or the non-worldview that we are painting here, uh, what is the question of God? Now, what is God here? Advaita has, you might be surprised to know, a very precise definition of God. In most theistic religions, which specialize in God, when you try to define God, you will find vagueness. When you, you end up with different conceptions of God, what is God, where is God, can you clearly define what cons constitutes God? They are different ideas and not, nothing very clear. You end up with, let's say something like there is an eternal mystery about it, well spare me that. That's good poetry. That's Edgar Allan Poe. But it's not philosophy. Vedanta has a very clear definition. Maya upahita chaitanyam. Consciousness, this pure consciousness, this Brahman we are talking about, conditioned by Maya, together with Maya, is called God. In the four stages we talked about, in the four stages we talked about, do you remember? Pot, clay and pot, clay only, and clay without being a cause of anything. Right? In these four, four stages we talked about universe, universe as an effect, Brahman as the cause. Second stage. This is where God comes in. Cause of the universe. All theistic religions regard God as the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent cause of this universe. All theistic religions will use a language with the same language, whether it is Vishnu or uh, Durga or our Father in Heaven, whatever language theistic religions used, one common factor they will say is the Creator is behind all of this. The Creator, it's Sustainer, and ultimately the the dissolver in Hinduism. So, God as the cause, of, the the reality which is the cause of the universe is the God of Vedanta. If you stop at that point, you've got God. You've got the, whatever you got at second stage, cause and effect. So if you stop at that point, world and God. So there is something called Brahman, which is the cause of the universe. And we are all part of the universe. But let us worship that Brahman, that is God, that is Vishnu, that is Shiva. In fact, that's the conception of God in uh, Vedantic Hinduism. Saguna Brahman. And that God being the cause of the universe must be all powerful. Not only all powerful, it's all loving. It is uh, uh, all knowing. Can you pray? Most certainly you can pray. Does God love you? Uh, definitely God loves you. God has given you the universe to play. Is God just? Yes. God has created the law of karma. In, in the, so Vedanta uh, completely, you know, Vedanta does not cut down theistic religion. Vedanta gives you the support for theistic religion. 
Vedanta will completely prescribe. Suppose, uh, you know, there were people when Shankara taught Advaita Vedanta, the traditional dualistic Hindus would say that these people, they say that I am Brahman. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in many lives. They say world is false. Only Brahman is real. Then what about heaven and uh, earth and many lives? And what, They don't believe in rituals. They don't believe in forms. They don't believe in bhakti. What kind of Hindus are they? And the answer given by Advaita was, Baba, listen. We accept every bit of traditional theistic religion. As an individual being, if you freeze the whole analysis at this second stage, at this stage, if I take myself as an individual being, I fully accept that there is a source of this universe, a cause of this universe. And that cause of the universe, Jagat Karana, is Saguna Brahman. Is, is, Saguna Brahman means Brahman with qualities. What qualities come from Maya. So, that's perfectly alright. All of theistic religion is accepted. But... Then what more is Advaita saying? If you go to the third stage, you will find this world, which is the creation, the effect of that cause, is not apart from that cause. Every bit of it is set in existence consciousness place. It's, a, it's an appearance in Brahman. At that level then, Brahman becomes the only reality, and the rest of it an appearance. So the answer to your question is the, the theory of two tiers of truth, two levels of truth. One is called Paramarthika, the absolute. The other one is called Vyavaharika. Or let's reverse this. Vyavaharika is on the top, like the surface of the ocean. Vyavaharika is the, uh, the rel relative, empirical, transactional reality. And the underneath, the, the supporting reality, the reality as it is, in itself, paramarthika, which means absolute. The absolute reality is non-dual consciousness, consciousness without a second. In the Vyavaharika reality, everything that you say goes. Science is accepted, art is accepted, religion is accepted, everything is accepted. With the own... So... A traditional religion, a religious person, whatever religion you belong to, Advaita is happy to sign all the you know, blank checks. Except, only provision is, the checks are not real. <laughs> <laughs> they work in the, in, the, in the monopoly game you are playing, but it's a game. Yeah. That's what Advaita says. That's, what a, that's, the, that's the difference between a dualist and a non-dualist. For the dualist, this dualist, pluralistic world is the final truth. There's nothing beyond that, no absolute reality beyond that. The only reality is the universe, me and God. This is a traditional religious framework. Advaita says, God, you and the universe are nothing but that fundamental reality called Brahman. Use the example of waking and dreaming. In dreaming you can have Everything, but all of it is falsified when you wake up. Not only when you wake up, even back in the dream, suppose you could go back into the dream and do lucid dreaming, you would know all of it to be an appearance, there's a deeper truth underlying everything, but you could happily play the game. You could play your role in the, in the, in the dream itself. So instead of calling it, you can call it real and false, satya mitya, but that hurts many people, this world is false, God is false, no. Then let's call it 
absolute truth and relative truth. Relative truth is a concession. <laughs> and you feel better about it. So, I'll add one more thing and before I go to you. Your uh, point about praying to God, is Brahman inert? Inert is not quite the right word. Inert means which does not react with anything. An inert gas. But what will Brahman react with? There is no, no second thing apart from Brahman. So what about the God of religion who is active and loving and doing things and uh, replying to your prayers? Notice when you talk about Brahman, you are Brahman. Isn't it true? In Advaita Vedanta, when you are talking in terms of the Advaitic uh, paradigm, you are Brahman. You are the absolute truth of this universe. So being Brahman, if you realize that from that perspective, what do you have to pray for? From whom would you want protection? Whom would you want to curse? Nothing. If you actually experience the universe, continue to experience the variety of the universe as an enlightened person, Jivan Mukta, you would feel a oneness with everybody. Uh, at the most, if you wanted to pray, you would pray for the welfare of everybody. Look at Shankara's life, the great teacher of Advaita Vedanta. Fully upholding the non-dual truth, he composed so many beautiful hymns to the Divine Mother, to the River Ganga, to Shiva, to Vishnu, to Krishna. Why? On the relative plane, all of this is accepted. Ultimately, if you ask him, if you push Shankara, so your Divine Mother and Shiva and Ganga, so ultimately they are all Brahman, which is my own reality. So something to chew about on. <laughs> yes. There was a question. Actually, my question was, is, was in a way answered. So my question really was that we speak of this as Vedanta, which is the end of Vedas. Yes. But Vedas themselves have gods in a way, right? Absolutely. Gods. Yes. So now that, but when we speak of Advaita Vedanta, we never even invoke those gods. Right. You know, so do they not exist as beings or uh, are they archetypes or how do we want to think The about answer them? is exactly like that. Yeah. They all exist, everything is admitted, the earlier part of the Vedas with its rituals and gods, all of it is admitted at the relative plane. So if you ask a specific question, does God or the lower gods of the Vedas or the ultimate God of the universe, do they exist? Or are they concepts? Or are they just um, ideas or something? They exist in the same sense as you exist right now. If I consider myself to be real, to that, to that extent Indra and Varuna are also real. But that's hard to reconcile because I feel myself. Yes. I know that I exist. Whereas I need a flight of imagination. To Absolutely. So the God of religion, Advaita does not want to prove the God of religion. You are insisting on the God of religion. So Advaita says, yes, the God of religion exists. Now you say, why, why can't I prove it? Advaita says, not my business. I can prove to you the absolute. <laughs> God of religion. In fact, everything else except Brahman, your real nature is existence, consciousness, please. Everything else is contingent. That this room exists and all of us are here. How do you know? You say, I see them. You could be seeing it in a dream. This was the great Descartian project of doubt, the ultimate doubt. 
the one thing Descartes couldn't doubt was his own thoughts. Advaita would push that a little forward and say that his thoughts were being revealed to awareness. Descartes couldn't take the final turn away from the thoughts of the final objects to the subject of that, those objects. Descartes couldn't take the, take the turn there. The consciousness to which the thoughts appear, the presence of the thoughts and absence of the thoughts are revealed by that consciousness. So that cannot be denied. Everything else can be doubted. Science can be doubted. Science depends, does science depend on consciousness or consciousness depends on science? Science on consciousness. But if you ask, you will say, no, no, this is the worst kind of psychologism. Today we are discussing that. So, it's a whole paradigm, different way of looking at it. Now, you are asking about God. The God of religion depends on faith. What reveals, where do you find the God of religion? In Vedas, in Bible, in Quran. That's where you find the God of, of, of religion. What do they depend on? On your belief. Ultimately, Hinduism says not on belief, you will experience it. Even a board will say, after death you will meet God, which means, until that point you have to believe in God. And after death you will meet God. So, God also can be experienced, but not right now. Right now, what is revealed to you is, there is a scripture which tells you about God, if you choose to believe in it, good. But there may be people who do not believe in it, atheists do not believe in it. Buddhists do not believe in it. Jainas do not believe in it. Who was that who said Voltaire or Pascal who said I, I see no I find no reason for this hypothesis. I think it's some I forget very famous scientist the king of France asked him in your entire thesis Pascal probably in your entire thesis um, I don't find any mention of God and he said your highness I don't find any necessity for that hy hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, you say God depends on faith, correct, God depends on faith. God, that's why bhakti starts with faith. Uh, but, in the, but you have to look at Vedas in a different light, because we are talking about Vedanta, so it arose from Vedas. Yes. Right? So the God of Vedas uh, should, should be explained, I mean I feel that uh, Vedanta should explain, uh, because the, what we understand is that Vedanta came from Ved, uh, Vedas. It, do, it did, Vedas from the Upanishads, or, yes. Yeah, Upanishads. Hmm. So if Vedas uh, talk of, you know, Indra, Varuna, then how does Vedanta reconcile it? Because now we're not talking about, you know, any religion, we're talking about Vedantic religion. Right. So how does it reconcile? And the, the answer is pretty simple. How does it reconcile? I will end with this. Answer is pretty simple. What are you, according to Vedanta, the same Brahman, Satchidananda, limiting itself or identifying with one particular body and mind, you say that that's, that's me, according to Vedanta. What are all these people? The same Brahman, limited to one particular body and mind. So these limited to one particular body and mind, Brahman, the infinite limited in one entity, it's called a Jiva. These Jivas, they go from life to life. Why life to life? Because the bodies get worn out and die. So they are replaced. So new bodies, new experiences, is it arbitrary? No. It is cause and effect. Causality rules. It's called the law of karma. Now sometimes these jivas, they attain very high positions, extraordinary powers and capacities. 
So for one cycle of a universe, creation, billions of years of existence and destruction of the universe, those jivas will have control of certain cosmic powers. So for one, for one universe, a particular jiva will be Indra, another jiva will be Varuna, another jiva will be Agni. So they are, they are worshipped as the Devas, gods with small g, not capital G. But God with capital G is the God of religion, Saguna Brahman, God who creates, preserves and destroys the universe. So that is called in our religion, sometimes Vishnu, sometimes Shiva, different names and forms, sometimes Durga or Kali. Um, or uh, Subramanya, diff different names are there, Ganesha, different names are put. So this is a very complex system in Hinduism. At one level are the smaller gods who are individual beings like us. We are extremely powerless, they are very powerful. But they are also limited conscious beings, Jivas. Ultimately they are all Brahman. That's what Vedanta wants to, wants to tell you. That's what we have to realize. All right, last, very last question. We have really run out of time. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm repeating the same thing that we've been talking about. But my question has always been if Jiva is, belongs to one person. No, one, one person is Jiva. Yes, one, one person is Jiva. So there is a relationship between Jiva and consciousness. Of course. So is there a precise way to know, just like how we have eyes to see and ears to hear, something that is given to us, uh, apart from understanding with scriptures, to know directly, experience directly, is there a way? Experience what directly? Consciousness. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the whole project. <laughs> that's what Vedanta is for. I understand that, I'm sorry. No, these are very important questions. I could go on for hours with this. One has to work carefully here. See, this is the whole thing about Aparokshanabhuti, the very word Aparokshanabhuti. Parokshanabhuti, Pratyakshanabhuti, Aparokshanabhuti. So she is saying, so I am beginning to understand what you mean by pure consciousness and all that. It's becoming clear, I'm beginning to understand. But understanding is not enough. Vedanta is giving us understanding. But is there any way of experiencing? What is experience? Do you have awareness now? Yes. Then you're experiencing awareness. Yes. Then what more do you want to experience? You are not conscious? I am conscious. Yes. You are conscious. What would it mean to experience consciousness? Ah. You see, I don't know, but you have the feeling that there must be something we read about enlightened people coming to this fantastic experience of consciousness. Consciousness cannot be experienced as an object. It is the experiencer of all objects. It has to be understood that understanding itself will reveal consciousness to you. Will I know the moment? Of course. There will be no doubt about it. <laughs> no, no, really. There will be no doubt about it. So you also gave the example of dream state and then the moment you wake up. You wake up? No. 
you know yes that is enlightenment that's what we are pushing towards no no that's correct she's on the right track that's what we are pushing towards and vedanta says it's available right now right here and the way is through understanding only that is the only way mm -hmm. that's not the only way there are many ways look at these paradigms you asked two questions were there about devotion about bhakti let me let me give you three I'll end with this. We'll take up this. This this can be a topic for a whole class. In fact, this is the topic of the whole book. Aparokshanubhuti. Uh, the 15 techniques which we have put, put forward. I'll make two quick points. I'm sorry, I'll take a little bit of time. Maybe 2 3 minutes. Two quick points and and end here. Um one is if you are asking seriously what does it mean to experience consciousness i asked what will it be like you say i don't know let me give you a hint what it will be like a hint is this all of us we exist you say because you will say i saw them swami was there in the chair yes how do you know i saw this shrine is there vedanta society is there how do you know i saw it right And do you know it? This is the uh, Vedanta Society of New York. I said yes. How do you know? Because it was written, Vedanta Society. That's why it's Vedanta Society. Now, if I ask you, do you have eyes? You say yes. How do you know that the eyes are present? Will you say I saw it? Right now, do you have eyes? Are you seeing your eyes? No. Without seeing your eyes, how do you know you've got eyes? You are able to see. The proof of my existence is you are able to see me. The proof of the existence of this book is that you are able to proof to you is that you are able to see the book. Proof of your existence of your eyes you are saying is that you are able to see. Able to see what? Everything. Anything that you see, the seeing the book proves two things to you. that the book exists and also it proves to you that you have got working eyes correct vedanta says here is the clue any experience whatsoever proves to you that you are this unlimited consciousness which experience any experience seeing hearing smelling touching you must be consciousness to have the conscious experience what else can you be you cannot experience consciousness like this just like you cannot experience your eyes like this but the very experience of this shows that i have got eyes similarly the very experience of anything in the universe shows that i must be conscious this is the clue and from there starts we can go on i mean actually all of this we studied it as a text but with that question one can work with a person step by step and come to this clarity all right the second point i want to mention here and leave you with this three frameworks let me give you three frameworks it came up in the question here religion spirituality can be approached in i'll give you three frameworks in which they can be it can be approached one is the bhakti framework god exists scriptures say so holy people say so believe in god surrender to god love god pray to god take the help of god live with the support of god one day you will realize god that is moksha freedom one day god will appear to you 
and it is it is validated again and again in the stories of mystics the the lovers of god the the mystics of every religion whether it's saint francis of assisi or mirabai of uh, hinduism or wherever starts with faith proceeds with faith and the method is through love and devotion and surrender one paradigm now comes the yogi the patanjali yogi and says no 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 not faith not belief not love and devotion i will show you techniques of meditation which will enable you to experience you will have an extraordinary experience a variety of samadhis which will prove to you the existence of your immortal soul samadhi extraordinary experience how will you do that here is ashtanga yoga follow this here are the techniques proceed in time you will get these experiences and they will prove to you what will prove to you extraordinary mystical experiences so the path is not mainly about faith its a path is a series of psychophysical exercises designed to generate extraordinary experiences which will validate the claims that's the path of yoga patanjali yoga third vedanta advaita what what we are doing the gyana yoga paradigm it says no 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 not faith which is good but we are not talking about that no 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 not extraordinary experience because that extraordinary experience will again how many people have that extraordinary experience and if you start on this path what is the guarantee that you will have it how long will it take 40 years even if you have it neuroscientist will come and say it's because of a stroke in the brain you are having this thing thing <laughs> yeah they'll say it's a pathological condition what does advaita vedanta say Advaita Vedanta says not faith, not even extraordinary experience. Take up ordinary experience, which is always available to you. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Who does not experience this? Every day we experience it. Body, mind, and witness consciousness. Drashta and drishya. Who does not experience seer and the seen? Subject, object. Who does not have this experience? Everybody has it. Five sheets of the physical body. the five sheets of the of the individual physical body vital body mental body intellectual and then uh, the causal panchakosha everybody has this experience take up always available experience and we will show you step by step take you straight to the to the atman the pure consciousness which you are which will be revealed to you in all clarity beyond any doubt that's the advaita approach when 40 years later in heaven no now what is the difference faith and belief and disbelief no knowledge and ignorance no experience and mystical experience no no knowledge and ignorance in ignorance it does not seem clear to me in knowledge it will be indubitably clear that getting that knowledge is the waking up experience we are talking about we'll take it up again it's good these questions are really good it shows you're thinking absolutely on track i wanted to finish aparokshanubhuti in one two more classes it'll take two or three more classes it seems till the end of may but good uh, we are on track om shanti 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 hari om tat sat 
श्री राम कृष्णा रूपणमस्तु